Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. And I'm excited to jump back in and, and, and uh, make some, gain some ground, if you will, kind of move through some things here in Genesis. I've loved the series thus far, and uh, we're going to be in Genesis chapter number three. The last message where we were in Genesis two, we looked at, that message was entitled, Three of Our Greatest Needs. And we saw really three of the greatest needs throughout human history for humanity, things that we need. And the amazing thing with this book, Genesis is so foundational to our faith. Um, Really, if Genesis isn't true, then none of the rest of the Bible is true. Genesis is the foundation of our faith, and really it's the pillars upon which the rest of Scripture stand. And so we're going, we've been, we're moving through this book verse by verse, and we've been six or seven messages to get through the first two chapters. We started it um, this spring, a couple of months ago, and we're going to continue to move through it. But there is so much in just the opening pages of Scripture, so many truths and so much wisdom that is so practical and relevant to where we find ourselves some 6,000 plus years later from the events that are being spoken of. It's amazing how timeless and how true and how applicable God's Word is to where we find ourselves in 2022. And uh, uh, this, this, where we're going to be this morning, we're going to see the fall of man. At the beginning of Genesis, it settles so many theological and doctrinal issues if we would just read it, believe it, and apply it. And we're going to see some things with the fall of man, the original sin of humanity. Of course, we understand that before this, Lucifer had fallen from heaven, but the original sin of God's creation, the fall of man as, through humanity, the human race, and where we've been in the first two chapters to this point. We have God's perfect creation living in perfect harmony, in a perfect garden, with a perfect marriage, enjoying perfect communion with a perfect God. One person asked, do you know why Adam and Eve had the perfect marriage? He said, no, why? He said, because she didn't have to hear about his mom's cooking and he didn't have to hear about all the other men she could have married. And I'm not sure, but that might be why. And just think about what an amazing place the Garden of Eden was. I was thinking about it this week. No mother-in-laws in in the Garden of Eden. And uh, you didn't like that joke. Okay, I'll leave that one alone. (laughs) Just kidding, mother-in-laws. We love you. But uh, one person asked, uh, one one person told the story of of Adam. And uh, Adam, before Eve was created, the story, the person told it, he was wandering around the garden and muttering under his breath. And uh, the Lord saw him doing that. He asked Adam, what's wrong? And Adam said, something just isn't right. There's something missing, and nothing in this garden is filling that hole that I'm feeling. What can I do about it? The Lord thought and answered, I have it. I'll create woman for you. And Adam looked at the Lord and said, what is woman? What, what, what is that? The Lord replied, she'll be your perfect helpmate. She will gladly and effortlessly bear and raise your children. She will cook and clean for you without complaint. She will be forthright and honest, and if she needs or wants something, she'll tell you without hesitation. She'll be ageless and will never change from her beautiful form. She will meet every need you have and fill that hole in your life that you're feeling. Adam liked the sound of it, but it sounded a little too good to be true. He said, well, Lord, what will that cost me? He said, an arm and a leg. (laughs) Adam thought for a moment and said, what can I get for a rib? And uh, just a joke, ladies, most of you are far better than most of us deserve. I know that that's true in my instance. My wife is far better than I deserve. But as we enter Genesis chapter number three, we're going to see how Satan deceived Eve and in turn Adam and infiltrated God's perfect creation, bringing sin and death into their lives and into this world. And here's the reality that the tactics that Satan used some 6,000 plus years ago in the Garden of Eden, the tactics that he used there have not changed much in your life and in my life today. 
We're going to look this morning at a message entitled, The Oldest Tricks in the Book. The oldest tricks in the book, you see, those things that, that Satan used to deceive Eve and in turn to deceive Adam and in turn to bring sin into this world and death by sin and it passed upon all men to bring corruption to this perfect creation, the same tactics, the same devices, the same tricks that he used there are some of the same things that he uses in your life and in mine. And I hope that today we see these things and it causes us to be a little more on guard in our lives. Next week, we're going to see the oldest gospel, or the oldest grace in the book. But this morning, we see the oldest tricks in the book. I want us to see how Satan deceived them so that we can be on guard in our lives. You know, the Bible tells us this. The Bible says that we should not be ignorant of his devices. It says we should know, you know, if you follow sports, I love sports, and, and what, as sports has developed, what do they do? They, they hire entire video teams and scouting teams and all of these things to watch every single second of every game over and over and over again. Why? To try to find a tendency. Well, when the pitcher nods his head like this, or he does that, it's a curveball, or whenever the, the football alignment, when the tight end goes in motion in this specific formation, then look for this play. They try Try to find all of the devices, the tricks, the tactics of the other team so that they can play better defense, so that they can be on guard to try to win. Well, the Bible tells us that we should not be ignorant of his devices. The Bible says that Satan is a real enemy. The Bible says that he's a roaring, as a roaring lion, walking about seeking whom he may devour. Do you know that the, uh, according to Scripture, spiritual warfare is real in this world and in our lives? Do you know that you have an enemy that wants to destroy your life? If you're married, he wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to discourage you. If you have children, he wants to get a hold of their hearts and, and cause them to stray from God. We have an enemy that wants to deceive us, and God has a perfect, beautiful will and plan for our lives, and Satan wants to see us get away from that, wander away, or, or lose that in our lives, just like he did here in Genesis 3. God had a perfect, wonderful will for Adam and Eve. And what did Satan do? He came in and he deceived them, and sin came into the world. We're going to learn this morning uh, how we can better put on the whole armor of God, the Bible says, so that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. What do we say in our vernacular if somebody uses a common tactic to get us? We'll say, you're not going to get me with that one. That's the oldest, what, trick in the book. And here's the reality. Satan is still using the exact same tactics, and he's getting us often. He's deceiving us with the oldest tricks in the book. His tactics haven't changed for thousands of years, and yet he deceives many of us over and over and over again. It seems that many of us never learn. Let's dive in. Genesis chapter number 3. We're going to look at the first 12 or 13 verses this morning of Genesis chapter number 3. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. Or if you're following along on a phone or a tablet, I'll be reading from the King James Version of the Bible this morning. Genesis chapter number 3, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle, that word means wise, than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. By the way, this isn't in my outline, it's not one of the main points, but you know one of the things that Satan loves to get us to do? He loves to get us to take our eyes off of all of God's blessings and all of the things that God has given us, and he loves to get us to focus on the one thing that we feel like God hasn't given us. The one thing that we feel like we wish we had. He does that to teenagers. He does that to children. He does that to single adults. He does that to, to married people. He does that to all of us. God has given us so much, and he gets us to focus on the one circumstance, the one relationship, the one situation, the one dream that we thought would come true or that we had hoped for, and the one thing. This is what Satan does here. She says, oh, he said, did God say you can't, you can't eat of every tree? And she said, oh no, God gave us so much, there's just one tree, it's okay, it's really not that big of a deal. He said we shouldn't eat of it. Notice what Eve says, God has said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, 
lest you die. I want to stop right here. Just, just, I want you to go back one chapter. I want you to see what God actually said. Chapter 2, verse number 15. Chapter 2, verse number 15, the Bible says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Interesting. So, number one, we see that, that God told this to Adam, didn't even tell it to Eve. So, it must have been that Adam taught his family the word of God. His family at that time was Eve, and she knew what God had said, and God had said it before she was created. So we can, in, we can infer from this that Adam had passed along, he was a spiritual leader, he had passed along the commands of God to his family. But I, I noticed something interesting here in verse number 17 of chapter 2, it says, um, you shall not eat of it. Notice what Eve said in verse th chapter uh, 3, verse 3, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it. It seems that somewhere either Adam and his wife decided, or Eve decided, or Adam told Eve, they added an extra layer of protection. We're not going to eat it, and you know what, Eve, you know what's safest? We're not even going to touch it. That's, that's what I get when I read that. Somewhere on, along the way, they added an extra layer. The biblical, biblical truth was, don't eat the fruit. Their personal standard was, don't even touch it. Because guess what? If we don't ever touch it, we'll never eat it. And I just want to stop and say this. Christian, it's not wrong for you to set up some personal standards in your life, to not get as close. Sometimes it's like, how close can I get to sin without, it's not wrong to put an extra layer of protection. It's not wrong to say, you know what, this is something I struggle with, this is a temptation that I have, I'm going to put an extra layer of protection. And by the way, had Eve lived based on their personal standard and the biblical truth that God had given to them, the God-given truth, they would have never fallen. They would have never uh, struggled with that sin. Jump back in, verse number four. Notice what he does. He says, and the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew not, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, God said, who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee not, that thou shouldest not eat? Rhetorical question, by the way. God wasn't searching for information. He knew. And the man said, the woman that thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, what is it that thou hast done? And the woman said, the serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And here we see the whole world changing because of the decisions of the first man and the first woman, because of their reaction and response and really failure from the oldest tricks in the book. How did Satan deceive Adam and Eve? And what does he use almost always to deceive creation, man and woman today? Number one, I see the first trick. I'll give you three of the oldest tricks in the book this morning. Number one, I see he cast doubt upon God's word. He casts doubt upon God's word. What does it say there in verse uh, number, verse number, let's see here, verse number, uh, uh, you shall not die. Oh, verse number one. The verse number one. Now the serpent was more subtle, and it says, he said unto the woman, first thing he says, yea, hath God said? Is this what the word of God taught you? He got her, he began to get her to question, to doubt. Is that really what it means? Is that, he's, he's keeping something good from you. That, that command, you're misunderstanding that command. There's something that you're missing out on here. You don't understand what he really meant. Surely God wouldn't keep any good thing from you. And doesn't the same thing happen to you and to me today? That God, that Satan casts doubt upon God's word. Well, if that feels so good to me, if that's, if that's what I think would make me happy, surely God wants me to be happy. And by the way, happiness is not the ultimate goal for the follower of God. 
holiness to be conformed into his image should be a far higher goal than our happiness, than our experience, than our pleasure. But, but is that really what the Bible means there? And be careful if your entire Christian experience is casting doubt upon God's word and fruitless debates and always looking for, well, does that really what that means? I'm not saying the Bible says we ought to study to show ourselves approved. We ought to know what the Bible says and what it means and how to apply it to our lives. But be careful about always questioning God's word in light of popular culture, in light of, of, of the news, in light of those things. Well, is that, maybe that's just an archaic, old-fashioned fair book of fairy tales. Satan today is seeking to cast doubt on God's word. Why do you think he didn't want Bible reading and prayer in public schools some 50 or 60 years ago when that was, when that was brought out? Why? He wants to have as little of God's word in this generation as possible. Because there's power in the word of God. Eve was no match for Satan except for one thing. She had the word of God. And had she stood on the, and by the way, she didn't have much of it. She had a statement. And had she stood on the one statement and lived the one statement of the word of God that she had, she would have saved herself and her family and and millennia of generations of people. She would have saved us from all of the heartache and corruption and brokenness. The word of God, just a couple of statements, was enough to resist temptation and live in victory. How much more should you and I be able to resist temptation and live in victory when we have the completed canon of Scripture at our disposal and every day. She had one statement, and that one statement was enough to resist the the temptation of the devil. How much more do you and I have of the Word of God to live by today? All the craft and the cunning of the evil one would have availed him nothing had Eve simply responded to every suggestion from him with the simple statement, thus saith the Lord. By the way, What should you do when you face temptation? You should do the exact same thing Jesus did. What did Jesus do, the the perfect sinless one, when he was on this earth? And and Satan brought him up into a high mountain. You can read about it in the Gospels. He brought him up into a high mountain for 40 days, and Jesus was physically weak. And be careful, when you're physically weak, often we can become, we open ourselves up, fatigue, uh, I think it was Lombardi said, makes cowards of us all. We open ourselves up to making decisions we otherwise would not have made. Just ask Esau. But, but what if Jesus was physically fatigued, and when Satan, Satan tempted him with possessions, great possessions, Satan tempted him with great power, and you know what Jesus, you know what the Word of God, the living Word, you know what he, what he answered? How did he resist the temptation? You can go back and read it for yourself. You know what he said? Satan said, you can have all of this. You can have all this possession. What did Jesus say? It is what, church? Written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, it is written. Then he takes him and he he offers him uh, all this power. It is written. How did Jesus resist temptation in his life? The living word resisted temptation by pointing back to the written word. How much more are you and me? If Satan can cause you, if he can cast doubt upon the Word of God in your life and in mine, it will open us up to all kinds of wrong thinking and wicked living. Satan's first tactic was to cast doubt upon the commands of God. Hath God said to cast doubt upon the truth of Scripture, to get Eve to think that maybe what God had said really wasn't true or what she needed for what she faced that day. And he does the same thing to you and to me. Well, maybe, maybe that was good in the Old Testament. Maybe that was good in Israel. Maybe that was good 4,000 years ago. But that's not really applicable and relevant to the life you're living today. I just want to stop and say, church family, this morning, if we want to live lives that are pleasing to God, it must be in accordance with his word. And how are we going to resist temptation? It is written. Are you struggling uh, to overcome temptation? Are you struggling to avoid sin? How are you going to avoid the disappointment and destruction that sin brings? Live in line with the Word of God. What does the Bible say? Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? What does the Bible say? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. 
How are we going to cleanse our way? The Word of God. What does the Bible say? Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It gives me light. It shows me the right way to go. What does the Bible say? Thy Word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. I've talked with many different people in discipleship classes and in in one-on-one counseling, and they're struggling with a specific sin, a besetting sin, or a specific thing here. And and this is not the only thing that I counsel them to do, but one of the things I'll say is, hey, get get a verse and maybe make it that it pops up every morning at a certain time on your phone, and you read that verse, you're struggling with lust, you're struggling with anger, you're struggling with bitterness, you're struggling with, with laziness, you're struggling with what greed, whatever it might be, find some verses in God's Word and read them a few times a day, commit them to memory, walk, do, do those things, hide God's Word in your heart that you might not sin against him. And you know what happens? I can't explain it, but there's a powerful, cleansing, amazing power in the Word of God. And all of a sudden, you're dwelling on the Word of God, and you're, you're, you're memorizing Scripture, and you're reading it, and you're, you're singing good, godly Christian songs. And all of a sudden, that temptation comes, and you know what comes to mind? All of a sudden, I have on my computer, I don't think I do now, but for many years, I had on my computer the verse, blessed is the man that walketh in his integrity, his children shall be blessed after him. And it reminded me, Ryan, don't click on something you ought not click on. Don't open that door to something that's going to destroy your mind, it's going to come in and affect your marriage. Walk in integrity as you're working on this computer. Walk in integrity and your children will be blessed after you. Why? Because you, you memorize things like that and all of a sudden a temptation comes and the Holy Spirit brings the powerful Word of God to mind. There's power in the Word of God. Read it, memorize it, hear it preached, feast on it, meditate on pertinent scriptures. What are we hearing today? All over our country, Satan casting doubt on the truths of the Word of God. What he did in the Garden of Eden is what he's doing on just about every major news channel today. Every popular television uh, show, the things that God's Word teaches, it's casting doubt upon it. Is that really what it, what, what it means? Is that really what it is? Oh, Jesus defined marriage as between one man and one woman, and opponents of that will try to cast doubt on God's Word. Well, what about this? Or, or why, why was there polygamy in the Old Testament then? And all of, They don't understand context, and they don't even care to. All they're trying to do is cast doubt on the truth of God's Word. The recent Supreme Court decision, Christians have stood up and said the Bible speaks against abortion and opponents will try to cast doubt upon God's Word. Well, if that's true, then why did God allow the firstborns to all be killed in Egypt? Not understanding anything about what was happening in that passage. And again, they don't care to understand what was happening in that passage. What are they trying to do? Trying to cast doubt upon God's Word, because when we cast doubt upon God's Word, we open our minds and our lives to any and every kind of wickedness. We'll be open to any of it. And it goes over and over and over again. Well, if God is love, if your God is love, then how could he send anyone to hell? By the way, the answer to that is he doesn't send anyone to hell. We send ourselves there by rejecting the free gift of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. But no matter what the command or truth is, popular culture will seek to cast doubt in your mind as to the teachings of God's word on that subject. Because Satan knows if he can get you to doubt God's word, the battle is won, and he can get you to do almost anything, no matter how harmful or hurtful it will be in your life. Eve had no idea how harmful and hurtful this decision would be in her life. She had no idea that this decision would lead to her son killing her other son in in cold-blooded murder. Had no idea how harmful and hurtful that one decision to give in to that temptation would be. But when Satan can cast doubt in our minds on the validity of God's word, it opens us up to just about anything. Hath God said? Is that really what he meant? His next trick is in verse number four, a denial of God's promises. A denial of God's promise here in verse number four. Would you read verse four aloud with me? Ready? Begin. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die. What did verse, back in verse number 17, when God made the command, he said, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. He made it clear. He even used the word surely, that adverb there. I'm I'm making it clear. This will happen. Death 
will come if you choose to disobey. That's the promise. By the way, God's Word is full of promises. Some of them are of that negative side, stay away from this or else you'll face this, and a whole lot of them are on the positive side. Satan doesn't care if it's a positive or negative promise, he just wants to deny that that promise is true. He wants to cast doubt on God's Word, and here's what Satan, how bold of him. God had told Adam, you will surely die, and Satan said, you'll not surely die. That's ludicrous. There's no way that's true, the denial of God's promise. That can't be true. Look at that fruit, Eve. It looks so good. It's pleasant to the eyes. Doesn't it look delicious? And it's kind of like, you know, those a commercial when you're really hungry and how good food looks on TV or Costco, the samples, like, oh, that looks so good. I've got to have that. Don't go to Costco. Well, do go to Costco when you're hungry. Don't bring your wallet in when you're hungry because you'll buy too much, but go and get the free samples. But when, when man, it looks so good and he tempted her. And he said, you're not going to die. Don't, don't take that book so seriously. You don't need to be like one of those crazy religious zealots. And, and I understand she didn't have the book. She had one statement of God's word, but I'm applying it to us today. No, no, don't take that. You're going to be one of those Bible thumpers, Eve. Come on, look at the fruit. That's, that's not true. That, that promise isn't going to come to fruition. Come on, do what you want to do. Do what feels good. Do what, do what seems good to you, the denial of God's promise. Satan will deny the promises of God, and like Eve, we have a tendency to believe him. What is one of the promises that Jesus told his disciples? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Lo, I am with you always. And what do we sometimes believe? God, you left me here all alone. You're not with me. We begin to believe that his promises aren't true. Oh, I, they're probably true for a lot of people, but, they're, but God let me down. The Bible tells us that God answers prayer. Yeah, but I prayed this one really important thing, and God never answered it the way that I wanted to. His promises must not be true. Satan's doing the same thing today that he was doing in the Garden of Eden, casting doubt on God's word, denying God's promises. And lastly, lastly, what is his trick? Deception about the results or the consequences. Would you read verse number five aloud? Ready, begin. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. By the way, here's what Satan does. He doesn't give you a whole bunch of error. He gives you a lot of truth with a little error. Literally speaking, was it true what he said that they would not die that day? Literally speaking, they did not physically, they didn't eat the apple and physically drop over dead. Literally speaking, what he told them had truth in it. You're not going to die today. But so much of them did die that day. The death of God's perfect will in the garden the future death of one of their sons, the death of relationships, the death of their innocence died that day. All of a sudden, they, they were shocked. They knew things they never knew before. They saw things in a way they never saw. They didn't realize what, what, what partaking of that fruit would open their eyes. And by the way, Satan tried to make it. He said it. He said it here in verse 5. God knows that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened. You shall know, be as gods, knowing good and evil. By the way, that word God in the Hebrew is Elohim, the, the name we use for God the Father. You're going to be like God. Isn't that interesting? Why was Satan down in the garden in the first place? Because he wanted to be like the most high God. His pride got him lifted up, and he, misery loves company. Hey, you, you can be like, well, Satan had already tried this. You can be like God. And by the way, he said, your eye, the day you eat this fruit, your eyes are going to be opened. Was that true? Is that what happened? Yes or no? Were their eyes open, church? Yes or no? But he forgot to tell them all that came along with that. He forgot to tell them the shame. He forgot to tell them the, the sin that followed it. He forgot to tell them the condemnation that came along with their eyes being opened. He forgot to tell them that God wasn't withholding any good thing by not letting their eyes be open to that. He made it seem like God was holding back something from them, and he does the same thing to you and to me. Just go try that. God's keeping back some wonderful feelings, some wonderful pleasures, and there is pleasure in sin for a season, but the Bible says when it is finished, it bringeth forth death. 
He lies to us about the consequences of our sin. He gives us a whole lot of truth mixed with a little error. Isn't that what every counterfeiter does? Counterfeiters don't print money on big, thick cardboard boxes. They try to find paper that looks as much like money as they can, and, and they get all of these, and it's a, this elaborate, and they, it's, it's not authentic, and it's not real, but they do everything they can to make it look as good as possible. I've been in the Philippines, and in the Philippines, there's a mall there called Green Hills, this huge indoor mall, and I've walked around. The first time I went there, I was like, I'm going to bring my wife home a coach purse, because I couldn't afford one in America. And these were not by coach, they were by someone else putting coach on it. So I brought my wife home a coach purse, and I bought myself a Mont Blanc pen. I bought myself a, uh, I don't know if it was a Rolex or what it was. All, I think I got all three for the low price of about 60 U.S. dollars. It's an amazing deal. Here's the reality. Those counterfeits aren't so good. My wife got home, she opened the zipper three times, and it broke, and she never got to use the purse again. My watch, like, I I don't think I ever wore it. The pen, whatever. Those counterfeits—but there are some out there that will go for hundreds of dollars, and to the untrained eye, you can't tell the difference. It's really high quality. By the way, Satan is the greatest counterfeiter there is. He takes everything that's a good gift from God, and he perverts it. God gives us love with no regret. Satan gives us lust that ends up leading us to shame. God wants to get, God, God has all of the perfect gifts and Satan perverts them and he lies to us about the results. The death that God warned them about was not immediate, but it was very, very real. Satan got Eve only to focus on the immediate. He told her that her eyes would be open. Think about all of the good. That was true. He didn't tell her that what she would now understand would change her life in a negative way forever. In American courtrooms, what do we often, many times they put their hand on the Bible, they put their right hand up, and what do we have them say? I swear to tell the... The what? The truth, the whole, and here's what Satan does do. He tells us some truth, but he doesn't tell us the whole truth. And he doesn't tell us nothing but the truth. He mixes lies in there, and this is going to feel good, and you're missing out on that, and everybody else is doing that, and everybody else is going there, and everybody else is drinking that, and everybody else is, is, is getting in that relationship, and everybody else is trying that, and everybody else is enjoying the pleasures of sin. You're missing out. Go try it. But what he doesn't tell you, what he doesn't say is at the end of that, you're going to wake up with that hangover, and you're not going to know what happened, and you, you might wake up in a jail cell and not know how you got there, and you might wake up with, with somebody telling you that there's a child you need to support, and you don't know where that came from. He's not telling you that this is going to break your marriage and this is going to destroy your family and that gambling addiction, oh, you might win some big ones, but you're not going to be able to put food on the table for your children. There have been many a family with children who didn't eat because their dad believed the lie that gambling was the answer. And there are all kinds of things, and they are good. By the way, you say, Pastor Ryan, so sin is not fun. The Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season. And Satan only tells us about that first season. He doesn't tell us about all of the baggage that comes along with it. The Bible says about God, the the blessing of the Lord, here's what he says, it maketh rich and he addeth no sorrow with it. God's blessing is great up front, it's great in the middle, and it's great at the end. Now, sometimes it takes a little longer. Sin is a little bit more of a, a quick thrill, a quick pleasure, but Satan, it, it's good. Satan's is always good up front and never good at the end. He lies to us. He deceives us about the consequences. If you watch that, it'll feel really good. Yes, it will for a moment, but then you'll feel shame and regret. If you'll try that substance, it'll be a lot of fun. You'll forget about your troubles for the moment, but then when you can't overcome that addiction and it leads to jail time and a lost job or lost relationships, you'll wonder, why did I ever get involved in that husband? That lady at work's attention will meet needs your wife isn't meeting. It will for a moment. Never mind the fact that you'll lose your marriage and respect of others and your children and relationships. Pastor, that extra money you skim from the church will make your life easier. Yes, it will until I'm in the, or, or any pastor, I say I'm because I'm the pastor in the room, until we're in the courtroom for embezzlement. Every sin is good up front. It looks so good. Eve, Eve, try this fruit. Doesn't it look delicious? It's so good. 
Try it. Your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know stuff you have never known. You're going to experience things you've never experienced. God's holding back from you. And let me just stop and say to the believer, young and old, newer believers and seasoned believers, God, when we live according to his plan, he's not keeping any good thing from us, church. There's nothing you're missing out on by living a life for Jesus Christ. There are no hangovers with obedience to God's command. No shame, no regret, no guilt when we obey God's word. Don't fall for his tricks, doubt on God's word, denial of God's promise, and deception about the results or consequences. I like what John Phillips said about the steep downward path of sin that that Satan set Eve upon. Do you see that? After he said, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Look at verse number six. He turned look, he turned the look into a lust. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. When the woman saw, what do we tell ourselves? There's no harm in looking. There's no harm in looking. By the way, sometimes you can't help what you see, but you can help what you dwell on. You might not be able to, I've heard it said, you might not be able to take control or responsibility for the first look, but, but if it's an elongated first look or that second look, that's on us. What did Satan want to do? Just look at it. He turned look into a lust. When she saw, what did he do secondly? He turned the desire into a decision. When she saw that it was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, what's the next verb? She took of the fruit thereof. She took. She saw, she took. What we dwell on, what we look at, our influence was, will always lead to our actions. He, he turned the look, Satan turned the look into a lust. He turned the desire into a decision. What started with the look, then she took. And then notice what, he turned the choice into a chain. Notice what it says. It says, she took of the fruit thereof, and what's the next verb? And did eat. John 8 tells us, he that commits sin becomes the slave of sin. Nobody, when they take that first sip of alcohol, sees themselves in some rehab facility with alcohol having completely controlled their lives. Nobody that gets involved in that first little flirtatious conversation or text message sees themselves in, in whatever it might be, divorce court or counseling or whatever it is. Nobody. Nobody does. Nobody, when they get involved, and you can just go on, nobody, when they just take the first $5 or $10 or $100 from work, nobody sees their name in the paper for embezzlement or, or fraud. Nobody. Because if we did, if we saw down the road, we would never do the first thing. But he gets us to look, and that turns into a lust, and that, that desire turns into a decision, and that decision, that choice turns into a chain. Before we know it, we're in too deep. Before we know it, those drugs have a hold of our lives. Before we know it, that illicit relationship, we can't, we can't get out of it. We're in too deep. It becomes a chain. And then lastly, in verse number six, what did she do? After that, she did eat the next verb and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat. He turned the sinner into a seducer. She gave. And I just want to stop and say this. Again, this is a little bit of a heavy message. Come back next week. It's the oldest gospel in the book. There's some really good news in the the verses right after this. But I think it's a good thing for us to remember the power of sin and the power of Satan. He wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy your life, your family, your future. He turned the sinner into a seducer she gave. She saw, she took, she ate, she gave. By the way, what's the application No matter how private, Adam had no idea about this sin. She did this completely all alone. No one else on earth, because there are only two of them, no one else on earth knew anything about what she had done. But what we do in private always affects those around us. That sin we allow to gain a foothold always has an impact on those closest to us. What started as a simple gaze at some fruit quickly led to inconceivable consequences. I want, you to, I want to remind you, and, and, and it plays out a little bit more, and we're almost done. I want to remind you as we close of the consequences when we allow Satan to deceive us into making sinful choices. What always follows our choice to do that which we know is sin? Look at verse number seven. And the eyes of them both were opened, 
and they knew that they were naked. Number one, what always follows our choice to do that which we know is sin, number one is regret. Regret. I, I have the privilege, my, my job is to tr try to help people in some of their lowest moments of life. So I have the privilege to deal with people that are either in their own lives they have regret or they've been affected by the sins of others. And I've yet to have anybody in 22 years of vocational ministry, I've yet to have anybody come to my office and say, Pastor Ryan, I'm so glad fill in the sin. I'm so glad I got involved in that. Boy, that was the best decision I ever made. The eyes were opened and they saw they were naked and it was, and you can tell from their actions, they were like, what did we do? How do we fix this? Well, what's going on? We should have never done that. Why did you eat that? Why did I eat that? What's going on? Regret. Secondly, what happens? What are the consequences of sin in our lives? What always follows our choice through that which we know, number two, is covering. It says, it says in verse number seven, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Don't we try to hide our sin? Nobody's going to know. We can hide it with our own wisdom and strength. We'll see it next week. God comes to the garden. He's like, why are you wearing those clothes? Where'd you find those? Where do those come from? Nobody will know. I can hide it and it'll all be better. By the way, that's what Satan wants you to do when you find yourself in sin. And the best thing you could possibly do is get it out in the open. Go to somebody and tell them, I'm struggling with this. Let's fight it together. That's what the Bible says, that we ought to help one another. We ought to restore one another. We ought to walk with one another in our struggles. And Satan wants you to hide it, to cover it up, to keep it inside. It won't affect your life. Don't worry. You can cover it now. And the, the truth of the matter is that never works. He covered it. Notice the next consequence of their sin is running from God. Look at verse number eight. And when they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden before, they always looked forward to God coming in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, what's that verb, church? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Unrepentant sin in our lives always, always affects our relationship with God and our God-given authorities. Let me say that again. Unrepentant, sorry, something wrong with my mic. Is that better? Unrepentant and covered sin in our lives, undealt with sin in our lives, always leads to us running and hiding from God and our God-given authorities. You know, you can tell, you work with people long enough, you can tell when something about their demeanor changes. And you don't know, you can't put your finger on it, but something's going on there. They're either walking through a really deep valley, they've been really hurt, or maybe they've let some things into their life that shouldn't be there. Something's different. Parents, let me just stop here and say, if kids, if, if there's a big demeanor change in your children and their attitude and their action, that's a red flag. Something's going on. They are either have made some hurtful choices in their own lives or they've been hurt. Something's going on there. Dig into that. If kids are always quiet and withdrawn, always trying to avoid you, always in the room with the door closed, that's not God's plan for the family. That's not normal. Very likely they are hiding something. What did Adam and Eve do? What was their first response? It's, it's interesting. I, I remember hearing my pastor say this, and now I've seen it now that I'm a pastor. There are some times where people that maybe have a bad attitude or that you know that they've, they've maybe said some things about you or they don't like some decisions you've made. It's interesting when that starts to happen, when they see the pastor, they often go another way. They don't want to say hi. They don't want to talk to him. They want to get away because there's something in their life that they don't want the pastor to know about. It's a funny thing being a pastor. I don't know what's happening here, so I'll take this one. Here we go. Sorry, test one, two. But we run. We run from God and our God-given authorities. They, they ran and they hid. Verse number nine. What's the consequence of sin? And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. What comes when we allow sin into our lives? Fear. There's no peace in living a life of sin. I wonder if my boss is going to find out. I wonder if my parents are going to find out. I wonder if my wife's going to find out. I wonder if my husband's going to find out. I wonder if my kids are going to find out. I wonder if the government's going to find out. You ever been driving a little over 65 on the 405? And you see a car with the lights on the top? And what's your immediate response when you're not doing what you should and you see a police car? Yesterday, we were driving home from, or driving somewhere, and a police officer drove right up next to me, and I got thinking, am I doing anything wrong? Is everything right? What? But when you are living not the way that you should, the Bible says that they are a terror 
to those that do evil. You live in constant fear. Guess what? If you're in an emergency situation and you want their help, the greatest sight in the world is to see a first responder to hear sirens. It's the greatest sound in the world if you have somebody hurting or in a, in a physical situation or a car accident. You can't wait for them to get there. But when you're going 85 on the 405, the worst thing in the world is to hear a siren. My wife sometimes will do, not that I would ever go over the limit, but if once or twice that's ever happened, my wife, because she doesn't want to nag me while I'm driving, she, she knows that I'm like, she, and so she'll say something like, honey, there's a police officer. And I'll put my phone on the brake real fast. And I'll look, and guess what? She lied. <laughs> there's no police officer. But she knows. She knows just the thought that, that she saw one, and she's my lookout. And it sounds like we're doing all kinds of bad things. <laughs> she knows that's going to get me to change. Why? Because... A God-given authority is scary when you're not living right. They were afraid. I was afraid. I heard your voice. We shouldn't be afraid of the voice of God. God doesn't want the Christian living in fear. Children are scared of their parents when they're not living right. Uh, husbands are scared of their wives when they're not living right. And then lastly, what's a consequence of sin? Look at verse number 11. And he said, who told you, who told you you're naked? Why, why are you scared? Who told you that? Did you eat of that fruit? Verse 12. Notice his first response. Instead of saying, yes, God, I did, how do I get it right? What did he say? Would you read verse 12 aloud with me? And we're almost done. Verse 12, ready, begin. And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. Who did Adam blame? Who did he blame? You're both right. Whoever said God and whoever said Eve. Isn't that interesting? He blamed Eve. But you know really who he blamed? God. You put me in the wrong family, God. That's why I am the way that I am. And that's humorous, but don't we say that? Well, I, I didn't ever see a good marriage, so that's why, I'm this, that's why I treat my children this way. My dad was always angry with me, and that's why I, and God, you put me in the wrong family. You got, gave me the wrong parents, and God, I never saw a good picture of marriage, so I don't know that I can be a good wife or a, a good husband. God, you did this wrong. God, you were wrong in the circumstances you put me in. It's your fault that I sinned. By the way, just like Satan's tactics haven't changed, our responses haven't changed since the Garden of Eden. Why did you do that? I'll go, and we have a swimming pool in our backyard. And, it, and every now and again, I'll hear some of the kids start yelling, and you can always tell when it's going beyond fun, and somebody's mad or angry or screaming or crying or whatever. And I'll walk out, and 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 sometimes I can tell by what's happening who was in the wrong. And I'll say, and you know, almost always, especially the younger ones, that still some of the older ones, but they know that my my investigation tactics, so they've changed. But as, some of the younger ones, as soon as I say what happened, you know how they always frame the story. Well, he was, and they always tell me what he was doing first. Well, he was, so I accidentally shoved him off the slide. It was just an accident. I didn't know he was going to fall and hit his head on the rocks. Total accident, Dad, because he was, they always start by framing them. It's sin nature. And this morning, some of you need to stop blaming your circumstances for why you are where you are. Stop blaming God. He didn't do wrong. Stop blaming God that he gave you that husband or he gave you that wife or she's not doing this for me or he's not doing that. And so that justifies this. And my boss and my coworkers and that church and that pastor, well, growing up, I was in an imperfect church with an imperfect pastor. So that's why I hate God. Don't, don't, don't justify your lack of a relationship with God because of the failures of some men in your life. No, no, no. Stop blaming. The oldest tricks in the book, cast doubt upon God's word. Has Satan got you? I think most of it's true, but I kind of struggle with that. In 2022, that feels pretty, that feels pretty archaic. It's not real politically correct to believe some of that stuff in 2022. Casting doubt on God's word, denying God's promise. Are you starting to think God let you down? God's promises aren't true. Deceit, deceit, deception, deceiving you about the results or consequences of sin. It's going to be so good. It's going to taste so good. It's going to feel so good. It's going to be so wonderful. Follow your dreams. Follow your passions. Follow your lusts. Forget about God's word. He turned, he turned that look into a lust, that desire into a decision, that choice into a chain, that sinner into a seducer. 
And then once they got in too deep, it was regret, trying to hide it, running from God, afraid, and blaming others. So what's the answer? Again, today's pretty heavy. Next week's gonna be really, really exciting. Come back for the exciting conclusion of this, this portion. God does some amazing things with Adam and Eve in the midst of their brokenness. But what's the answer? How do we avoid these terrible consequences? Number one, believe God's word above all else. Above your wisdom, above popular culture, above your friends, above the news, above your upbringing. Believe God's word above all else. Number two, what's the answer? Obey God's word no matter how good sin looks. It was pleasant to the eyes. It looked really good. By the way, if sin didn't look good, we would never fall for it. There's a reason it looks good. Obey God's word no matter how good sin looks. How different would the world have been had Eve just simply said, get thee behind me, Satan. God's given us all of this beautiful garden. He's given us so many wonderful things. I'm not gonna focus on the one thing he hasn't given us. I'm gonna follow his word. I only have one statement of it, but it's enough to keep me right where I need to be. Keep me living the life I need to be living, and I'm gonna stand on the word of God that I have. So the question this morning is, who will you believe, God or Satan? God's word or your wisdom? Some 6,000 plus years later, we're all faced with the same choice on a daily basis that Adam and Eve faced on that fateful day in the garden. Who will we believe? Whose wisdom will we follow? Who will we live for? The Savior or self? The Savior or sin? I've preached a little longer. One of my kids asked me this morning, they said, Dad, since you didn't preach last Sunday, are you going to preach long this morning? I guess I did. (laughs) Satan's still tempting us the same way he did to Adam and Eve all those millennia ago. Let's, let's Let's not be ignorant of his devices. Let's put on the whole armor of God and let his word guide us, not human wisdom. Let's let scripture guide us, not popular culture. Let's let, let's let the commands and the promises of scripture guide us, not our feelings and our sight and our flesh. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.